you are a follower of the church year, you know that we, even by looking at our parents, are in a season of green. It's often called ordinary time or kingdom tide. We're wearing purple stoles, of course, to honor the series that we're beginning today as we look into what it might mean to be a purple church. And we're going to use Paul's letter to the Philippians as a foundation for these next five weeks uh, on this series, and along with a book that I will mention in just a little bit. So we'll start at close to the beginning of Philippians. Paul has just finished gushing over them, and then he says this, writes this, I want you to know, beloved, that what has happened to me has actually helped to spread the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and everyone else that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers and sisters, having been made confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. Some proclaim Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. These proclaim Christ out of love, knowing that I have been put here for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but intending to increase my my suffering and my imprisonment. What does it matter? Just this that Christ is proclaimed in every way, whether out of false motives or true. And in that, I rejoice. The word of the Lord. Join me in a prayer. It's an intriguing response Paul gives to the question he asks, what does it matter? We didn't expect that response from him. And yet, within it, might we find a guide to the way in which we are to approach those around us, the way in which we are to live in the world. May we hear what you would have us hear, O God. May we learn what you would have us learn so that we might grow into the people you would have us be. Speak to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. What does it matter? It's the question Paul just asked in this reading. And it might just be the most important question he asks in his entire letter to the Philippians. What Does it matter? It's a good question. Depending on what you're talking about, and especially if it's a subject that is highly divisive and conflicting, as many subjects are today, asking that question, what does it matter, is probably going to get one of two reactions. The first we'll call the overdramatic reaction. What does it matter, right? That's the question. Overdramatic response. What does it matter? 
How could you even ask that? I'm appalled that you would even think that this doesn't matter. Nothing matters more than this. I stake my life on this very thing we're talking about. I can't even believe you would have the gall to think that it might not matter. I'm not even sure I can be in conversation with you anymore. Overdramatic response. The other we might call the completely resigned response, resigned to it. What does it matter? It doesn't. It doesn't matter at all. I could care less about this dumb issue we're talking about that everyone thinks is so important. It just does not matter. Therefore, I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I'm just not going to talk about it. I'm not going to even deal with it. Un, completely resigned response, right? Both reactions are exactly that. They are reactions. They are what wells up inside of us when, and spurts out of our mouth before we have a chance to even think about what we're saying. It's a reactive thing. We, um, later often we think through what we said and we're like, well, maybe I was a little too strong or maybe I was a little too resigned. Maybe there's something there. So they're reactions. They're emotional. Both of them. One is emotionally immersed, where emotions are driving everything that the person is saying without any thought as to what they're even talking. I'm just highly offended, right? Like, that's just highly emotionalized, emotionally immersed. The other is emotionally detached. I don't care, therefore I'm not going to have anything to do with it whatsoever. But both are reactions. And interestingly enough, when Paul asks that question in his letter to the Philippians on an important issue, he takes neither posture. Now, given the, the circumstances, one might think that Paul would have a little bit more of an intense response than the one he gives. After all, we're, Paul is not known for his lack of intensity. He's a highly passionate person. So you would think that he would have a little more intense response, especially as to something that is affecting him so personally, because as Professor Craig, Fred Craddock reminds us, I mean, here he is in prison. He is in jail. And there are people out there taking advantage of the fact that he is in jail, using their ministry as, a, as his condition, as a way of boosting their ministry. And he speaks about, I mean, Paul mentions that. You would think that he would come on, get on them, right? I mean, they're, they're bothering him. He says it himself. They're not doing it right. You would think he'd just go whole hog after them. That's what we would expect, right? Put them in their place. That's what we would expect because that's what the world teaches us to expect. You don't like it, ram it down their throat. Go get them. Put them in their place. That way, if Paul did that, all those people who support him can rally behind him and in one loud voice shout, Yeah, you're doing it all wrong. But that's not what he does. He doesn't overreact. He doesn't lash out. He doesn't yell louder. Instead, he gives a calm, collected, 
well-thought-out response. What does it matter, he says, just this, that Christ is proclaimed either way. Now, I know he's anxious about it. It's pretty clear in the way that he words it that it's, it's bothering him a little bit. Otherwise, he wouldn't mention it. There are people out there taking advantage of my situation. And it, he, he almost comes out and admits it. It's bothering him. It's anxious. He's worried about it. It bothers him. But he does something remarkable. Instead of letting it dictate how he behaves, he decides instead to behave a different way. Instead of allowing the others out there that are in his mind doing the wrong thing to have power over how he acts, he decides to maintain how he believes he should act. In other words, if the entire world were going freaking out and going berserk, Paul has decided to not let that change how he believes he should be in the world. If you were to categorize the two groups, the ones who are preaching it right way and one who are doing it the wrong way, as, as blue and red or red and blue, either one, doesn't matter which way you look at it, as blue and red and red and blue, you would have to admit that Paul's posture here is purple. It's neither. And yet he's in one camp. He gives his opinion. And the way that he approaches it, it's purple. It's purple. Today we live in a highly anxious world. Just feel it almost daily, almost by the hour. Everything is a reaction. Everything gets a reaction. Even if we don't want it to get a reaction, it's going to get a reaction, which makes us just not even want to offer our opinion in the first place, right? Because we know what's going to go. We know what's We offer our opinion. Where is it going to go? It's just going to dive straight to the bottom into this deeply conflicted place and go nowhere. It's just going to go nowhere. So why even bother? Why even try? Why even offer my opinion? Why not just, you know, it's red and blue. It's, it's right and left. It's left and right. It's I know the right way and you're absolutely wrong. I mean, it's exhausting. It's paralyzing. Aren't you tired? Late century, late 20th century rabbi Edwin Friedman wrote a book in the late 90s before he died called A Failure of Nerve. Failure of Nerve. And in it, he cites five characteristics that highly anxious families, groups, communities, societies, you name it, groups of people, highly anxious groups exhibit five character traits. Reactivity, herding, herding, blame displacement, a quick fix mentality, and lack of self-differentiated leadership, as he puts it, which we'll get to that much, much later. But what we're going to do he also says, and this was the late 90s, that American society exhibits all five traits. All of them. And so what we're going to do in this series is we're taking one of them each week as a way of helping us understand ourselves a little more, 
how we might be around other people in a better way, and really most importantly, what trusting God actually looks like. In other words, we're going to use them to try and be more spiritually purple. Not politically, spiritually. Spiritually. Today we're obviously talking about reactivity. When talking about reactive groups, Friedman points out that when you're in a reactive group, you are more likely to interrupt one another, finish other one's sentences because, you know, that robs them of power, interrupt one another, more likely to take things personally and make things personal, more likely to have more diagnostic you statements than you do self-defining I statements. By that I mean things like, you don't know what you're talking about. You clearly haven't read the same material that you need to read. You clearly are not the expert on this. You clearly do not understand. So, that's the, what he says about highly anxious groups. And Paul could have done that. I mean, Paul could have launched off into focusing all his energy, all his time, all his, all his effort into, into focusing on others, changing them, changing this group that was irritating him, right? Focusing all his effort on that, changing this group, that how they're behaving and what they're doing, changing them, right? Putting all his effort into it. But it wouldn't have worked. Surely we've learned that by now. It doesn't work. Yelling louder does not help. Trying harder to change someone else who does not want to change goes nowhere. If someone wants to change, they're going to come and ask you about it. They'll, you'll know. You'll know. So trying harder, it's a futile effort. Friedman calls it the treadmill effect, you know, running on the treadmill but actually going nowhere. It's like a fly, he says. You know when flies, you know, try to get through a window? Flies have like a thousand eyes, yet they just beat on the window, and they're never going to get in. Window's not going to change. It's like that. It's like married couples that try harder to change their spouse. Who's done that? I can raise both hands. Who's done that? It's like parents who keep trying harder to change their kids. I don't know why they do that. I mean, that's just, you know, they shouldn't, and they try to change their It's like teachers who try to change their students, CEOs who try to change, try harder to change their managers, pastors who try harder to change their congregations. Paul could have put all his effort into that. But instead, instead, he works on himself. He simply defines who he is. What he believes. And then he finds a way of applauding the fact that at least the others are trying. Either way, he says, Christ is proclaimed. It's a purple statement. So how does he do it? How in the world does he stay calm and connected and, and in that centered place? And he doesn't always. Read Galatians. He goes off, boy. 
But here he stays calm. I think he does it because he knows two things. He, he has figured out what makes him anxious. Knows what makes him anxious, so he sees it coming. He admits it right here. There's people out there doing that. Without saying it, you don't need to say it. It makes me anxious. I'm worried. Knows that. And then he remembers who's Lord. And it's not him. He remembers who's Lord. It's what keeps him calm and centered. And it's the first step in being a purple church. Remember who's Lord. And you ain't it. I'm not either. How in the world can you sit next to someone who votes completely different from you? How can you do that? Because you remember who's Lord. How can you begin to be in a conversation with on a big issue of the day with someone that sees it completely different way than you do. How can you do that? Because you remember who is Lord. How can you possibly be part of a church where everyone reads the same Bible and then walks away with different understandings? Because you remember who is Lord. Remember who's Lord. And that you're not it. You're not in charge of the world, but you are part of the world. You know what makes me anxious? I've got a long list. Long list. But one of the things that makes me anxious that relates is when people make wide sweeping assumptions about someone else. I just that just it just goes right here and I just get all balled up because you know, thing, you know, when people say things like, all you conservatives are just black, or all you liberals are just the same. And it just, because I don't believe that. I mean, I just don't believe that you can categorize and people that way, and that it's just so simple. I, I just, we're, we're too nuanced. It's not a human, we're human. So it makes me anxious. You know what calms me down? Knowing I'm not in charge. Thank you, Jesus. Not in charge. I remember who's Lord. I remember who's Lord. What makes you anxious? What gets you all riled up? You might ought to figure that one out. If you're going to spend any time in a relationship with someone who is not you. Might want to figure it out. And guess what? The more you practice remembering who is Lord, the more you kind of figure that out. And the more you practice remembering who is Lord. Like me, you just might be able to be more able to stay calm in a conversation with good people who happen to say things that make you anxious. Do that homework for me. Look into what, what really gets under your skin. Become aware of it. And then follow Paul's lead. Remember who is Lord. Take the first step in being a purple church. Amen.